You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. All right, I'm not sure if I can admit this, but uh, and definitely don't tell my mom. But uh, but I but I've watched the Godfather trilogy. The Godfather trilogy from the 70s, you know, that gangster film. There's a lot of violence, and I can't quite endorse it. But at the end of the scene, I think I have a slide here from there. Uh, I promise this one isn't the gory one. But um, there's this scene towards the end of the movie where Michael Corleone, he doesn't want to be part of the family business, so to speak. But through a variety of circumstances, he is. He's now in charge. His father's died. His son has been killed by some rivals. And, uh, and, and he has just ordered a hit on all of the other five families to take out their leaders because they're trying to kind of gun for him. And this hit is happening at the same time that he is becoming the godfather of his, uh, of his sister's son. And so at this, uh, at this sprinkling of the baby... Uh, in his mind is thinking all of the hits that are going on at the same time. And so you have this, this juxtaposition of this man who is participating in this religious ritual, while behind it, there's all of this horrible violence that he is orchestrating. And you just see this conflict within him. And he's actually, not to ruin the movie for you, but it's been like 40 years, so you've had time. But uh, he's about to actually order the hit of his sister's husband even shortly after this for betraying the family. So you have this weird juxtaposition of like this person who and this religious symbol that's happening and at the same time these murders that are happening behind the scenes. And in Genesis chapter 34, we have a scene in the Bible that if it was a movie, I would not recommend you see it because it feels like it's a scene from The Godfather where a family is avenging an atrocity that's happened to their family with, hor- with just incredible violence, um, all under the guise of this religious ritual. It'll make sense as we go through it. But just to give you some context, we're working through the book of Genesis, and we just go the next chapter. So we work sequentially through the, the Word of God, and we come sometimes to passages that we wouldn't normally pick to preach, but we believe that all of God's Word is important, and we're on a long journey through this first book of the Bible. And so we come to Genesis 34 and 35. Um, and what, what happens is, is that we've got this promised family, this descendant of Abraham. Abraham is supposed to be a blessing to all nations. He's going to have land and descendants, and God is going to use him to bring redemption to the whole world. And so he waits a long time for his son, and then finally God gives Isaac miraculously. And Isaac is the one who now receives the promise of becoming a great nation becoming a blessing to all nations. And he has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they are in rival with, with each other. And neither of them are particularly great guys. But God, in his, uh, in his plan, has chosen that Jacob would become the one that then is the carrier on of the promise. Through a bunch of wrestling with his uncle and polygamy and all of this stuff, he ends up with 12 sons, 11 sons, I think, at the point of this event, maybe 12 um, they're going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. God's going to change and has changed Jacob's name to Israel, and they are now going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. So as he goes back and has this confrontation with Esau, he's supposed to go to Bethel, but he doesn't go all the way. He settles in Shechem, and then he buys some land, and it's prosperous. It's a prosperous place. It's a little bit like Lot settling in Sodom. He's not quite following all the way through to go where God has told him to go, and now he's put his family in a compromised position. And we're going to see that happen here. So if that thing continues to flicker, you can always just use the remote and turn it off. Because um, anyway, I don't want you to erase your memory because then I have to start the sermon over from the beginning. And you don't want that. So so let's look at, uh, let's break it down into the two chapters. I do have, I shouldn't look at that one. We'll look at this one. Um, you can go to the next slide there, Joseph. So we're going to break the chapter up into two parts. Chapter 34, Godless Atrocities. And then Genesis chapter 35 is, uh, is kind of a hodgepodge of things. It's almost like Moses has ADD as he goes through this chapter. As we have a number of things, a number of threads being woven up and brought to conclusion in chapter 35. But first, let's look at chapter 34, Godless Atrocities. This is crazy. So in the first seven verses, we have heinous abuse. Heinous abuse. I think there's an outline up there just so you can track with this long section of Scripture. Let's look at verses 1 through 7, heinous abuse. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. 
And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because, of, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Uh, so we just have this horrible situation. Jacob and his family are sitting there, and Dinah, who is the only girl that's mentioned among all of these brothers. There could be others, but she's the only one mentioned. She's the daughter of Leah, and, uh, and she goes out. She just goes out to make some friends, goes out, and seems to leave the safety of the camp. And while she's out there, she is taken, and she's abused. She's likely a teenager, and she does, it seems, at least somewhat foolishly, enter into a dangerous situation although she's clearly a victim here. Shechem does what's a pretty common thing among Canaanites in ancient cultures, is that you see a woman you want, you go, you take her, you rape her, and now because she is somewhat damaged goods, no other man's going to want to marry her, then you can now propose and extort the father to get a pretty good deal. You can now take her for yourself. In fact, this is something that many ancient cultures have laws about, and even later on the Israelites will have laws about this in Exodus chapter 22 verses 16 through 17, and Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 30. So you just see the wickedness of the Canaanite people. You see that Jacob's compromise to settle among these Canaanite people has put his daughter in a vulnerable position. She has left the safety of the camp, and she has been taken. She has been abused. She has been mistreated. And now they want to keep her. They want to have her for themselves permanently. This occurrence, one commentator put it this way, this occurrence serves to illustrate the low standard of morals prevalent among the Canaanites. Any unattended female could be raped, and, in the transa- and then the transactions that ensue, neither father nor son need the, feel the need to apologize or excuse, or excuse for what they had committed. I think what's maybe most sad is not just the actions of the Canaanites, but Jacob. Jacob, the father, decides not to take action and let's Leah's, uh, not, not Leah, but Dinah's brothers know about it. These are the unloved children of the unloved wife, and they are required to fend for themselves. So Jacob, the father, waits for the sons to come back and go, hey, something happened with your sister, you might want to, you might want to know. So we just see just horrendous, heinous abuse. Verses 8 through 24, we have a hedonistic agreement. So Shechem has taken Dinah and now has decided he's going to speak kindly to her. He's mistreated her, but now he's going to speak kindly to her. And uh, he wants to keep her. And so he tells his dad that he wants to make an agreement. His father's like, that sounds good. The, the Jacob people, the Israelite people, this, these, these people here, they're pretty prosperous. It would be good for us to merge our tribes together. So let me see if I can't work something out. This whole situation might actually work out good for these Canaanites. Verse 8, but Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great, as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. I will give whatever you say to me. There we go. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So this sounds so, Hamar feels like he's really doing a, a solid here. He's really doing a good thing, right? I'm going to give you generously. Let's just, let's just merge these two things together. And now there's a temptation that the godly line of Jacob uh, is, to, is going to, is tempted to merge for the sake of prosperity and ease to marry with this line of Canaan, the cursed Canaan, the descendants of the serpent, so to speak. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. So here Moses, the author, gives us a little bit of behind the scenes of what's going on in their hearts. They asked, they answered deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you. 
And you will become as we are by having every male among you be, be circumcised. And we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor. And Hamor, son of Shechem, and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do this thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all of his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke with the men of the city. Guys, we have a deal on the table, all right? It's a bit of an awkward one. These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition, all the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of this city. So now Dinah has just become a bartering tool now. No one really has much interest in her well-being and what has happened to her. She's just become now... A, something to be bought or sold. A financial settlement. And then we can move on. No admission of guilt. We still see those kinds of things happen today, right? Sexual abuse situations happen. Little money under the table. Nobody says anything. It quietly goes away. Well, that's not new. That happened in the Old Testament. And now we have this covenant symbol of circumcision, which is supposed to show that you are dedicated to God. This 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 reality that you are in right relationship with God, the sign, the symbol of being set apart for God, set apart as a people of God to represent him well in the world. Now the symbol has become a negotiating tactic. It, and it, it is now being leveraged, not for godly purposes, but for vengeance. The covenant symbol now becomes an instrument of deception and vengeance. And the people of God cannot be taken at their word. That's very sad. These people that are supposed to be a blessing to all nations are now deceiving the nations and using the covenant symbol that shows set-apartness for God as a way of not evangelism, but as hindering them, making them vulnerable so that you can then slaughter them. So the covenant sign no longer is a way to show one's trust in God, but it's become a bargaining chip. And for Shechem, he now uses circumcision to satisfy his sexual lust. If getting circumcised means that I can have this woman that I've taken anyway, well then great. Hamor uses circumcision to satisfy his material lust. If we intermarry with them, we're going to get all of their cattle. That's, the, that's how he sells it to the other guys. of going, we're going to be so rich. Just have a quick little procedure and this is going to be awesome. We're going to get all their stuff. And Jacob's sons use circumcision to satisfy their bloodlust. So now you have this covenant symbol being used for fleshly purposes, sexual lust, material lust, blood lust. And so we're in a mess. We're in a mess here. This feels like the Godfather. This is trickery. Defending the family honor, but doing so with just brutal violence. And so that brings us to verses 25 through 29, which is a horrific annihilation. Look at this. Verse 25, on the third day, when they were sore... Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Shechem came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field all their wealth, all their little ones, and all their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and they plundered. So this, this feels like the Godfather. They used this covenant symbol to put them at a disadvantage, and then these two guys went in and killed all of the males, which makes me think this is probably not a huge tribe. For one, marrying into the family of Jacob feels like a huge win for them, Right? And the fact that two guys can go in and knock them all out means that this is probably a pretty small little tribe, probably a small little clan. But it's still a, an atrocious mass murder. This would be a war crime. At their most vulnerable, Simeon and Levi slaughter all of them and actually profit themselves, right? 
They don't just leave it at justice, taking Shechem's life, but Hamor, all the men, and then they take all the women and children themselves and enrich themselves. So they've actually profited from this whole ordeal as well. And then we get to verses 31, 30 and 31. We have an honor argument. Look at Jacob, father of all this, watching all this. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I will be destroyed, both me and my household, both I and my household. And then these two sons challenged their dad, somewhat rightly. They said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And you get this argument. Jacob's like, man, wait till the media gets a hold of what we did. That's the first thing that comes to his mind when he challenges his sons. Is What is people going to think? This is going to destroy our reputation. And they're like, but dad, what about our sister? Does she mean nothing to you? They're both wrong. They're both right. In some sense, yeah, they have endangered the family and the legacy and the seed of promise. They might be a big backlash from this. They've not acted as they should, but Jacob hasn't acted as he should either. Jacob's concerned at his reputation. He's concerned about what will happen on Twitter when people hear what happened. Twitter didn't exist yet, just so you know. He isn't concerned about Dinah. He isn't concerned about the violent nature of his sons. He's not concerned about the captured women and children. He's concerned about what people are going to think of him. There is a need for justice, but is this the way to do it? And what's crazy, in this whole chapter, you can look through it, God has never mentioned a single time in the whole chapter. He's never consulted. He's never considered. He's never mentioned. God is completely absent. There's only three chapters in the whole book of Genesis where God isn't referenced mentioned at all, and this is one of them. This is a godless atrocity, a godless vengeance. Barnhouse is a commentator, and he writes this, Jacob, you brought this trouble on yourself. You passed on your deceitful nature to your boys. You set them a constant example of guile. They heard you lie to Esau at Peniel, and, and start northwest before he went southeast, after he went southeast. They saw your interest in the fat pastures when you pitched your tent at Shechem. You said nothing when Dinah was violated. Talk to God about your own sin before talking to these boys about theirs, which is true, and the boys should be challenged as well. There's no heroes in this text. Can you point to one good person in this? Dinah. Dinah's the victim. Lots of victims. Lots of sin. And what's interesting is when we get to the end of the book, Genesis chapter 49, Jacob's tone is going to change. Given the amount of time that happens, and I think the Lord's work in his heart, when it comes to Genesis 49, at the end of the book, when he begins to give a prophecy over each of his sons, he says this about Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. This is Genesis 49, 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So eventually, jo Jacob will pronounce his judgment, his justice on Simeon and Levi for this violent wrath that came pouring out of them. So you, what will be interesting, and we'll see this uh, unfold, is that the line of promise is supposed to come down through one of these 12 sons. There's Reuben. He's the oldest. Then you've got Simeon and Levi, and then you'll have Judah. The four sons of, of, of Leah seem to be born first, and so you would naturally kind of work your way down from firstborn down. It seems now that the middle two are disqualified according to this prophecy in Genesis 29, from being the line of promise. And I think that's part of the reason why this story is in here. Why does the promise not go through Simeon or Levi? Because God disqualifies them from that. And I think Genesis 49 says that. All right, I've got a bunch of application points that I'm going to hit very quickly here uh, that fall into kind of three main things. So this text, there's so many things that we could take from this text and go to other parts of Scripture 
uh, I'm just going to somewhat frustratingly just bring up a few <laughs> things, not fully develop them, but just make some statements that I think that we can conclude from this and the rest of the Bible. Uh, one, uh, th- three quick points on abuse and justice. Sexual abuse is always evil and always deserves right justice. Doesn't matter how sweetly Shechem spoke to her afterwards. Doesn't matter how much he's willing to pay. That was wrong and is always wrong. Dinah was abused. She was mistreated. And that does deserve judgment. That does deserve justice. However, deceptive, murderous revenge is not the same as justice. These brothers did rightly have an instinct towards justice and judgment, but they, they really went beyond the lex talionis, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that there would be proportional justice. They took license to be deceptive, to be murderous, and to go far beyond. And they slayed innocent victims under the guise of justice. So it's tough. It's really tough to get justice right when you have sinful human beings on all sides. But justice is required and needed. And then number three, often leaders are more concerned with reputation than justice for victims. Don't we see that in Jacob? Unfortunately, we see that happen in the church as well, where an allegation of abuse will come up, and it's, there's more concern about what, what are people going to think of the church or what are people going to think of the leader. And that's just wicked in Rome. But it's not new. It's not right. But we often see that, and that's not okay. We have to commit at our church to be a place where we're more concerned about the well-being of the victim and handling things rightly than whether or not word gets out and about us. Does that make sense? So, if that's your story or those kinds of things have happened to you, then to find someone that you can trust, that you can talk to, to deal with those things, because they do deserve to be dealt with. Justice should be done. And let us be more concerned about the well-being of people than how things are perceived publicly. History and confidence. So this passage, you'd kind of go, you know, the Bible works pretty good without this chapter. <laughs> like, why, why, why does God feel like of all the things he could say and all the things he could record that this would be in the Bible? And I think history and confidence right here. The Bible shows us how to handle history. I think we're in a, a bit of a cultural moment where we don't know how to, what to do with history. We either whitewash it and make it really better than it was, or we cancel it, right? And the Bible does neither, Right? These are the people of God. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the heroes. And the Bible is honest about what they've done. And the Bible doesn't cancel them. Isn't that interesting? The Bible tells us how to deal with history. It tells us how to handle history with honesty. God's people are uniquely able, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus and because of the Bible we have in our hands, we are uniquely able, above all other people out there, to be able to speak rightly to history, to both honor history for what it is, to honor people, even sinners, for the good things they've done, and to critique history, honestly. Because we're the people that believe that everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone is made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and honor and respect. There is something to commend in every person because they're made in the image of God. And every single person is capable of horrendous acts of evil. So we can hold those two together and we're uniquely positioned as the people of God with that kind of theology and that understanding to look at everybody rightly, to look at the founding of our country with distinction, right? To look at presidential leaders and to neither deify them and sanctify them nor to entirely demonize them, right? We have the ability to discern and the Bible shows us how to do that. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the heroes of the faith. And yet there's a place for both honor and critique. We can call out what's truly evil and we can call out what's truly good even when they exist in the same person like a person like Jacob. And passages like these should give us confidence that the Bible is true. Because if you were making up a story, you would make your heroes look a lot better. Right? And the Bible's not interested in that. God's the hero of the story. And so God has no problem at all showing the failures of every single human being ever and the fact that he is gracious and patient. 
if Moses was trying to write a story that would give the Israelites confidence that they are the elite, that they are the perfect ones, that they're the ones that are better than everybody else, if you're constructing a religion, you do not include this story, that this is the kind of people you are. That the person you're named for, Jacob, treated his daughter like this. That he has sons like this, right? Because God is the hero. So actually, oddly, preaching through a passage like this, while somewhat uncomfortable, should give you confidence that the Bible is being straight with you, being honest with you, and it's trustworthy. One last thing, two, well, a few, few last things here. Covenant signs. This is interesting. The misuse of the covenant symbol is indeed a tremendous evil. That, that's the thing that struck me as much as anything. That this was meant to be a sign of right relationship to God. It wasn't perfect. There were certainly people that were circumcised that were not true believers. But the fact that they would use it so flippantly is truly a tremendous evil. We see in the New Testament the symbols of baptism and the Lord's Supper are treated with great respect. That's a symbol of the Old Covenant. Galatians tells us a little bit that that is not required in the New Covenant, but the covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper are, and there's tremendous emphasis placed on both of those ordinances of doing them rightly. In the book of Acts, when, uh, when someone is baptized in the baptism, baptism of John and not the baptism of Jesus, it's redone. People are commanded to be baptized. This sign must be executed rightly. And it must be tied to faith in Jesus Christ. And in the, in the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, God actually puts some people to death for misusing that covenant sign. So let us value as a church and cherish the covenant signs. The Old Testament, they did not do so, and it became just a, a plaything that they could use at their will. They could define it however they wanted. They could leverage it however they wanted, as opposed to it being an invitation to come into a relationship with God and something that set the people of God apart. And that's what baptism and the Lord's Supper are in the New Covenant. So those are some things to think about. I'm going to leave them there. Let's go to chapter 35. Chapter 35 is all over the place. You're going to notice this. And it's really tying up a lot of loose ends. So we're getting to the end of the Jacob story. Starting next week, we're going to get a genealogy of Esau. That's going to be exciting. 73 names that no one can pronounce. But then we'll also get into chapter 37 where the narrative shifts to Joseph. And Joseph is the last 14 chapters of the Bible. Largely, it's about him. So we're getting in this chapter now a closing up of really Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there a lot of their lives are now coming to a close right here. So you see a lot of threads in this passage being brought together. We'll handle it quickly here. Two divine encounters, three important deaths, one new nation, okay? I tried to make it simpler than that, but there's just no way to do it. It's just a complicated bouncing all over the place. You'll see what I mean. Let's look at divine encounter number one. So the last words of chapter 34 are the brothers challenging their father. Like, they used our sister as a prostitute. End of chapter. Very next words in the scripture. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob, this is just a gracious reset. The atrocity that just happened, God shows up and goes, Hey, Jacob, look me in the eyes here. Get to Bethel. Like, like I wanted you to go beforehand, right? Just a gracious reset. Here's what, here's what I need you to do. Get your family up out of here. Go where I told you to go. Verse 2. So Jacob, and look at Jacob. It's like he finally gets it. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods, which means he'd been tolerating foreign gods to this point that are among you, and purify yourselves, and even change your garments. And then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make an altar, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. This kind of repentance. Like, we're putting all of our idolatry away. We're going to bury it in the ground under a tree, and we're moving on. Verse 5, and as, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, which I would understand. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So God even protected them from the vengeance that could be coming. 
And God gets the credit for that. That people did not retaliate from the destruction of that, the, that Simeon and Levi committed. Verse 6. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him who had fled from his brother. So this is awesome. God graciously resets the whole program, right? And Jacob responds in repentance. No more compromise. All in repentance. Wholehearted obedience. Jacob finally takes spiritual responsibility for his home. You notice that? He finally takes spiritual responsibility for his home. He's always been a pretty good provider because he can swindle, right? He can get, like, the kids, the family has been fed, cared for, protected largely, but they have never been spiritually led by their father. And now they are. It seems like he's actually taking some spiritual authority in his family. Put it away. We're done. We are a family that worships the Lord, which I find so encouraging. Husbands and fathers, if it's not too late for Jacob, at well over 100 years old, maybe 110, maybe even 120, he's an old man, then it's not too late for us. It's not too late for us to step up and be the spiritual leaders we are called to be. To say to our families, we're done. We're done with the idol. We're putting some things away. We're doing life differently because we worship God. We're up, we're moving, we're burying some things, we're moving on. I find that so encouraging. There's so much water under the bridge for Jacob. There's a lot of damage that he can't fix that's already done. And yet, while Jacob has breath in his lungs and blood in his veins, it's not too late to turn. It's not too late to do God's will. It's not too late to step up and be the spiritual leader of his family. And I'm just greatly encouraged by that, that it's not too late. Divine encounter number two. We're going to skip verse eight. Let's go to look at verses nine through 15. A final appearance. This is the last time that God appears to a patriarch. This is the last time. This closes it out. God has met personally with Abraham many times, with Isaac a few times, and many times with Jacob. This is it. He's now going to speak with Joseph through dreams. This is going to be the last time that we see God actually personally interacting with a patriarch. So this kind of closes out um, this chapter in redemptive history in terms of relationship to the patriarchs. It's going to shift now because this is the final appearance. God appeared to Jacob again, verse 9, when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob. Do you remember that? He wrestled with God. God already renamed him but there's still a lot of Jacob in him. <laughs> All right, let's start over. Jacob, you're to be a different kind of man, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel, just reaffirmed that identity on him. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. This is the second time he's been at Bethel. This is where the ladder was, the staircase to heaven. Well, now, after a whole lot of good and bad, he's back here, and he's getting this promise reset. And in some ways, you almost see a summary of all of Genesis. Right? In verse 11, I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. That sounds like Genesis 1. In the Garden of Eden, when he made Adam and Eve, said, you to be fruitful and multiply. Well, that promise and command is still in play. Jacob is like a new Adam. Bringing forth, God is God Almighty. I am commanding you. Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 2 and 3. There will be a nation that comes from you. Genesis chapter 12. God is resetting the whole covenants. All of the Genesis covenants right here, resetting them with Jacob at Bethel. And what I find fascinating here is it says, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Which is weird because a multiplicity of nations from Abraham makes sense because he had Ishmael, and Ishmael becomes a bunch of nations, and Isaac becomes another nation. So there's multiple nations. Jacob, not Jacob, Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Esau will become a whole bunch of nations. We're going to see that next week. And Jacob becomes a nation. But Jacob really only stays Israel. None of Jacob's sons or daughters actually become other nations. So this is a weird prophecy that God gives, a weird promise that you will be a company of nations, 
Because if you read the story, it always just stays Israel. No one breaks off. None of his sons break off and start another nation. So why would God say that? Is God wrong? I actually think this is an indication that there is going to be a new covenant where people from every tongue and tribe and nation are going to be brought into this family. Israel is going to have wild Gentile branches, other nations grafted in, which is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11, is that Israel will have grafted into it a new people of God. Through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, there will be an opening to a company of nations to come in. So here we have a hint, an indication about Jesus, about Jesus, that from Jacob will come not just one nation that blesses all nations, but many nations will now get to call Jacob their father, will get to call Israel their home, will get to be entered into and counted a part of the covenant family. So a name at reaffirmation, a promise reset, and now a company of nations promised. So now we have death number one. Go back to verse eight. We have a faithful servant. Deborah, verse eight, and Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under an oak below Bethel, and he, and he called its name Alon Bakuth. So this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 24, where Abraham sends a servant to go get a wife for his son Isaac. And remember, she waters all the camels and then gets all the jewelry and then goes in great faith to go marry Isaac. Well, there's a little detail in there that there's a woman that goes with, a servant, a servant girl that goes to just be with Rebecca, to be her servant. And then she totally vanishes from the story until now she's treated with great honor in the scriptures. In fact, we don't have Rebecca's death recorded. I don't know why, but we have Rebecca's servant's death. So at least at some point, Deborah must have served this family so well that her death is actually notable. That in some sense, she is to be honored. And she got a special burial in the scriptures here. That's really all we have. But it's just interesting that there are these characters that barely get mentioned, but I think probably serve faithfully and are honored in the scriptures. And it's just a fascinating verse 8 right in there. So that's the first important death is this Deborah dies. And that's significant for the family that they do a special burial for her and she's preserved forever in the scriptures. Important death number two, verses 16 through 21, a beloved wife. Now listen to this. This is just incredibly sad right here. They journeyed from Bethel, and then when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into hard labor, and went into labor, and she had hard labor. Remember, Rachel is the beloved wife. She's the one that the moment Jacob got into, uh, got into the land, he was going there to look for a wife and run from his brother, and he lays eyes on her, and from that moment, he's smitten by her. He agrees to work seven years for her, and then gets tricked into marrying Leah, and he decides, no problem. I will go ahead and serve another seven years. And she has been barren for a good chunk of this time. Her sister is producing children. Her, her sister has children, but wants to be loved. And Rachel is loved, but really wants to have children. And so you have this tension between the sisters, and they give their servant girls to their husband so that they can have sort of this child competition. And she finally, finally is able to give birth to Joseph. And Joseph's the favorite because it's from the wife that Jacob loves. And now, miraculously, in their very old age, she conceives again, but this time it's going to end in her death. Verse 17, And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called out his name, Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died. And she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Back in Genesis 29, when Rachel is discovering that she's not able to have children, she goes to her husband. It's the, it's the first words we have recorded of Rachel. She says to her husband, give me children or I die which then becomes kind of an ominous reality because in having children, she will die. So you just have this ominous sort of tone is that the thing that she most wants actually ends up resulting in her death. She dies giving birth to a second son. So the beloved wife dies. 
giving birth to a precious second son. She names him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow, which is a rough name to give a kid. And so Jacob goes, no, 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 no. This is the precious son of my beloved wife. He shall be Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Oh, he'll have a special place right next to me, which again shows Jacob's favoritism over his sons. Because <laughs> Leah is naming all of her kids. Jacob doesn't even bother to name them, but Jacob is going to favor this one, this Benjamin. That's going to be important. Joseph and Benjamin being, being Jacob's favorites, that's going to play really important. So keep that in your mind as we get through the rest of the book. And then finally, one new nation. Verse 22, while Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, six sons from Leah. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. So there's two, so now we're up to eight. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, I ran out of fingers, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. All right, so now you have for the original audience the 12 tribes. This is it. Everybody, the people of God, descends from this. Did you notice that little one sentence at the beginning of chapter 22, or verse 22? Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So now remember, the line of promise is supposed to go to one of these sons. Which one of these 12 is it going to be? You would start with the firstborn. But now look at Reuben. Reuben takes one of his father's wives. I think this is partially because he's in a bit of a rivalry with his father. And to take one of your father's wives is to sort of assert your authority. You're going to see David's son, Absalom, do that. Take his father's concubines as sort of a, I'm taking the role. I'm taking the role here. So this could be a power play on Reuben's part, but it's certainly gross and weird. And so if you go to Genesis chapter 49... When Jacob gives the prophecies over his son, listen to what he says about Reuben. We already looked at Simeon and Levi, right? Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. You're a man who takes charge. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Israel makes it clear, Reuben won't be the line of promise. Simeon won't be the line of promise. Levi won't be the line of promise. Next in line is Judah. And guess what will come up in the next couple chapters is Judah. Will Judah, will it be the line of the tribe of Judah that will bring forth the promise? We'll just have to wait and see. That's why those details are in there is to show you which one of these sons is going to be the line of promise. Which one of these is the Savior going to come through? And then important death number three, the laughter stops. Isaac's name means laughter. Isaac's still around. <laughs> he is still around. This man just is, <laughs> he's just been around forever. But he's been irrelevant to the story for quite some time because it's been about Jacob for a long time. But Isaac has been around. He's been in the background. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years old. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good run. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, they're still getting along, buried him together. Buried him together. Isaac is buried with Abraham and Sarah, 100 years, 180 years old, at least 40 years past the stolen blessing incident. Which you remember, Isaac thought he was about to die, so he was going to give the blessing, right? Turns out he still had 40 more years. <laughs> but he's really somewhat irrelevant to the story. Once he passes on the blessing, Jacob really becomes the theme of the story because it's about what God is doing and not these characters. A few applications, and then I want to conclude with Christ. Thanks for hanging in there. Application one, praise God for his patient faithfulness to his promises, despite the people he has to work with. Is that not comforting? Oh, praise God for his patient faithfulness. Praise him for that, despite his people being a mess. You look out at the people of God, you look out at Christians and churches and they're a mess, you should go, well, that's about par for the course. <laughs> that's not excusable. God doesn't excuse it, but he is patient and he is willing to work with people who are a mess. Take, take encouragement in that. 
Secondly, true repentance is always in response to God's call. God called Jacob, and Jacob responded in repentance. God is always the initiator. And repentance always includes every part of life, right? Even the earrings. The earrings are gone if they dishonor God. All of it. We're, we're changing clothes. That's how serious we're getting. It's the right response. And then people live, they do some stuff, and then they die. <laughs> right? Their relationship to God and the leg legacy they pass on to their children is what matters. None of the builders of Babel are remembered. But lowly Abraham is remembered because he's a man of faith. And I just want to ask this question. When was Jacob saved? Kind of a weird question. Was he saved the moment that there was the decree in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, that he would be the promised one, that the older would serve the younger? Was it the moment he received the blessing from his father in Genesis 27, verses 27 through 29? Was Jacob saved when he saw God and responded to him at Bethel, the staircase, Genesis 28, 13 through 17? Or was it the moment he walked away wrestling from God with a new name and a new limp in Genesis 32? Or is it here in Genesis chapter 35 when he finally fully repents? I don't really know. When is Abraham really saved? That's not to say that salvation doesn't happen in a moment. It does, but it's sometimes hard to discern, right? We look at Jacob and we go, well, I don't know. I don't know. He responds rightly sometimes and then falls back into his own patterns, right? And is that not how your life sometimes works? <laughs> it's true with Abraham. True of Isaac. The point is, is are you trusting in him now? Are you trusting in him now? And are you growing? Are you growing in your trust in him? Are you moving towards repentance? I hope that you have a moment where you can look and go, yes, I was transformed from death to life, but frankly, not, all, not everybody has that, and that's okay. Are you trusting in him? What's your relationship with him? We see movement in Abraham. We see movement in Isaac. We see movement in Jacob. That they're moving towards God. They never renounce their faith. They're moving towards him. And to pinpoint one moment is impossible. And I think the Bible is that way on purpose because sometimes that's how it is for us. Just keep pursuing Christ. Keep putting your trust in him. Keep trying to dive into deeper levels of faithfulness and obedience. And I think over time, it will prove to be true. Let us conclude with Christ. Thank you for your patience. Let us conclude with Christ. When we think about the title of this message, Something Greater Than Sin and Death, that's the title of this message, Something Greater Than Sin and Death. When we think of the godless deception and violent atrocities of chapter 34, when we think of reaffirmed promises to the undeserving in chapter 35, when we think of grace that travels through death and into eternal hope in, in chapter 35, we should think of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. In Luke 23, you think of a godless atrocity, think of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The deception from people who claim to be the people of God. To put Jesus to death violently. When they came to the place that is called the skull, Luke 23, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And look what comes pouring out of Jesus. Just like God in the Old Testament pours out grace on Jacob, even though he screws up his whole family. <laughs> These people, Jesus on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ, the Son of God, this chosen one, the, son, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The ultimate destination and resolution of Genesis 34 and 35 is found here in Jesus Christ. The call for justice. Grace that extends beyond death. Godless atrocities are absorbed by Jesus Christ himself. What pours on him is true divine justice against sin. 
At the same time, what pours out of him is eternal divine grace and forgiveness and blessing to both the victim and the victimizer. The criminal gets grace if he repents. The victim gets grace and restoration when they come to him. The murderous thief may cry out just before death and receive mercy. It is free to all who repent. Just as Jacob does in chapter 35, willing to repent at the gracious initiative of God. The promise, the grace, the forgiveness, it doesn't end at death. We see these in chapter 35, people put in the ground, and yet the plan of God moves on. It's not dependent on any one person, but Christ himself. And so the promise moves on. It transcends death. And so what about you? What have you done? What has been done to you? You can be honest about it. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. If you look to him in repentance and faith, neither past sins nor future death will define you, intimidate you, or discourage you. Nothing that has been done is unredeemable by Jesus. So we have this tension that is left hanging through godless atrocities and horrible deaths, (laughs) sad deaths. It sets up this tension that is going to just sit there throughout the rest of the Bible and at times get worse until it's finally resolved in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Something that surpasses sin and death. Something that goes on beyond sin and death. Our sin and death. And the sin and death of these characters. Romans 8, 37 through 39. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's good news. The Bible is good news with a whole lot of bad news <laughs> setting us up for just how sweet the good news is. Let's pray. God, I pray for my friends here. I thank you for them. I thank you for their willingness to sit and listen to uh, this message and to hear hard words and weird words and um, characters that maybe they've never heard before who live and die and do terrible things and God, we just uh, thank you that you deal with real people, that you're honest about both um, sin and the image of God, uh, that you are patient, that you are faithful, you are gracious, and we thank you that all of this, all of this tension, all that is broken, finds its resolution in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that we would put our eyes on him, that we would repent fully, that we would bring both our brokenness and our sin to him and be made right, be made whole, receive the free grace that's available to us. I pray that for my friends here. I pray that for myself. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.